were in a situation where none, nothing has been verified or um, there's really little, very little information that was put forward, uh, I think personally that very important for me uh, as a teacher to not know. It might sound like, well, okay, that should be obvious, but it's actually not when as soon as the same day that the charges were made public, I went onto various uh, social media sites and there were already a predominance of extremist takes. Some people were essentially, he must be guilty. And then there were others who said this is some kind of witch hunt. And I think both of those views are needless right now. A much smarter view is to in no way condemn without any information either parties at all, and just to try to withhold any judgment. So um, tonight's talk is about then being with not knowing, being with events in our lives where uh, not just with rumors about people that uh, we know, it's more about just uh, the events that uh, where we hear something, something is going on, even something in relationship to ourselves, and we don't know. And how can we be with that unresolved experience? Um, which goes very, very, very deeply against human nature, to be willing to not know. Um, from a very primal level, and I'll go through all some of the different reasons why it's so difficult to just allow oneself to acknowledge that we don't have enough information, that we can't form an opinion or a view. The first thing is that all of human speech uh, and socializing has been proposed by evolutionary psychologists such as Robin Dunbar and others is grounded on gossip. Gossip was the first form of human speech. We, uh, our species, developed in hunter-gatherer clans where you'd spend your entire life in a small cell of about six other adults and a few other children. And then you would occasionally get together a few times a year with a clan which would be maybe comprised of all distant relatives that were comprised in different cells or different uh, groups. And the most important thing for human beings at that point was to keep track of which individuals were generous and safe and which individuals were not generous or not safe. In other words, there were very, very scant supplies of food, of shelter, of clothing, of uh, warmth. So an individual that in a hunter-gatherer society went out and collected stuff and didn't share, hoarded, or didn't come to others' aid, or didn't in any way uh, he take care of the sick, or didn't defend another person who was injured, it was essential to keep track of who those people were and those individuals would eventually be expelled uh, from their clan. So there's a lot at stake at knowing who's good, who's bad, who's done what, um, because our entire 
survival as a, as a human depends on our ability to socialize and form lasting commitments with others. So it's very, very deeply against our nature to simply, when other people are talking about someone, to simply say, I don't know. When we say that, we're kind of acknowledging, oh, I'm not in the know. Everybody wants to be in the know. Nobody wants to be, I don't know. Uh, when you say, I don't know, I can't, I'm not sure, we are acknowledging that we don't have anything to add to a, a conversation very often. We are not, we don't feel in the middle of all the, and it's much easier to start developing opinions and views. Well, I sort of kind of felt something uncomfortable about that guy. Yeah, 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 let me jump in here. Um, so, uh, but there's many other reasons why not knowing is so difficult. A uh, famous, uh, deeply respected clinical psychologist, Gill's story of the College of London, uh, developed what's known as cognitive dread, which is when we're waiting for information, many of us uh, find waiting for news, waiting for information to be more painful than getting bad news. Uh, it's known as cognitive dread. Expecting an emotional event is an emotional event in and of itself. Um, I can give you some examples. If you've ever worked in a job and you're uh, so a supervisor, somebody above you says, can you come into my office on Monday morning? Your weekend most likely is going to suck. I mean, I can tell you that pretty much straight away unless you have an amazing uh, psychological self-care uh, project hearing unresolved information. If you get a call, hey, we got your blood work back and there's some funny numbers we'd like to... But it doesn't mean anything yet. We just need to get a biopsy or whatever. Nobody, or very rarely, people find that enjoyable or something that they can just put aside. Um, so we as a species do something that's pretty unique. It's called catastrophizing, which means in the absence of information, many of us will fill in the blanks with the worst-case scenario. The brain has what's known as negativity bias. Negativity bias is a product of uh, natural selection. It's something like this. Um, it's always safer to assume the worst. Uh, you're, uh, from the perspective of passing down genes and the survival of the species, it makes more sense that we assume that somebody new is threatening until they prove otherwise, or we assume that we don't reach into the bush where we hear a rattling sound until we, you know, do everything we can. We just assume that things are negative or dangerous. In fact, certain studies show that uh, um, if you show somebody five unhappy faces, and five happy faces, and you wait two weeks, and then you interview those people, you show the pictures again, 
Everybody will remember the negative faces, but very few will remember the positive ones because we are so hardwired to just focus on threats and uh, difficult experiences. So, right after this information came out, I, I, got, a, I got pretty much flooded by a bunch of emails and texts and stuff like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Is the whole, is everything going to dissolve? And, uh, no. It's not. I mean, even in worst case scenarios where certain teachers have been found to uh, have engaged in horrifically uh, inexcusable behavior, in that worst case scenario, uh, their communities continued and thrived. So, that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything like that. Uh, I don't think that we should allow ourselves again to jump to the worst conclusion, even though that it's deeply wired into human uh, neural wiring. Uh, we interpret and fill in the blanks with very simple yes, no ideas, guilty, innocent, good, bad, because that's uh, also deeply ingrained in the, the circuitry of the left hemisphere. The job of your left hemisphere is to interpret every experience in life into a very simple, what's, what people call a perception, or the Buddha called a sign. A sign is good, bad, safe, unsafe, edible, inedible. And that, of course, helped us to survive as well, because throughout human evolution, it was very good that we could look at every given, you know, fruit or thing hanging from a tree and immediately say, edible, inedible, that root is safe, that root has got snakes on it. So being able to encapsulate or uh, reduce all the complexity of human beings uh, uh, to very simple, that guy's an idiot. Or that guy's brilliant, or that guy's funny, or that woman is unreliable, or that woman is extremely insightful, or that uh, child is talented versus that child is not talented, or whatever. We need to encapsulate to be able to have a view that's a very quick soundbite is also uh, very much wired in. The Buddha said that to his son, Rahula, that it was one of the most important practices from the very beginning of one's spiritual life to not constantly try to reduce other people or experiences into good or bad, right or wrong, uh, likable or unlikable, to be willing to hold off the snap judgments, as it were, and finally, the left hemisphere also finds the feelings that occur when we don't know, which is a feeling, a somatic physiological state of discomfort. The left brain doesn't like that unresolved feeling in the body, and so it's always easier to create a story of you know, what happened, even in the lack of information. It's always... Uh, 
just uh, preferable from a very early age in life. One of our earliest defense mechanisms, which is to defend ourselves against our feeling of lack of control that we feel in childhood because we are constantly at the uh, uh, whims of our parents and other adults. We have very little control and many of the decisions that parents make, children do not understand why, what's going on. And so very often children will, uh, to give a sense of control, will start relying on fantasy or uh, internal monologues. They'll blame themselves if their parents get angry or they'll blame uh, other factors. Some children will stop, will avoid stepping on cracks or start counting, or do other routines. But we develop stories to get a sense of control. To, if we don't have a story, or a view, or an opinion, then what's left to be aware of is that vulnerable feeling of being alive and not always being in control. So um, the Buddha, again, said that seeking certainties of views and opinions Upadana is almost invariably unskillful because what it does is it leads us to live a very disembodied life. We lose the ability to regulate or be with our own difficult emotions. It isolates us from people because we have to defend our opinions and our views. And the most immediate thing I saw on social media was a lot of just warring factions, people immediately from the get-go just lashing into each other depending upon how one person or another person interpreted this, these, this, this event, even though there's no information to interpret yet. None. The only thing there is is a vague report about third-party allegations, and that's all anybody knows. So... Um, So the goal is to become comfortable with not knowing, because guess what? That's going to be a dominant feature in all of our lives. Eventually, as you get really old, like my, me, um, what happens in your 50s is that literally there's a lot of unresolved things that you have to learn to wait about. I spent the entire, as I was saying, I spent the entire first year of writing my book not knowing if it was going to be published at all, because uh, the company that wanted to uh, publish it, they fired the editor, and I didn't get any information. So I was just sitting there writing, not knowing. This could all be a complete waste of time. Uh, there was, uh, there's many events, not just opportunities that you don't know. You know, if you're an actor, you are saying you apply, you know, you go for an audition, you get a call back, you don't know still. You you're, uh, apply for graduate school, you're not going to know for a long time whether you get in. Being with unresolved experiences in life is, if we don't have a practice in place, can be one of the most excruciating periods. But if we do have a practice, uh, practices in life, uh, we can uh, we can actually survive it without it being overwhelming. Uh, in fact, the in many ways in core Buddhist teachings, the idea of not knowing is a very central idea that that's what life is all about. 
We don't know when death is going to occur, how it's going to occur. We don't know uh, what our future is going to look like. We don't know. Uh, frankly, we live in a, in a country with a man-child who's insane running <laughs> the government, so none of us fucking know anything, frankly, right now, because we've got a lunatic with his finger on nuclear... I don't know if there's an actual button, but we could all be fucked, right? So I, I, we don't know. That's our existence. And there's an old uh, metaphor in Buddhism of a traveler who's walking on a, on a cliff road and suddenly there's a tiger and the tiger comes rearing towards them and they jump and they just are holding from a vine over a thousand foot drop and there's a tiger above them. So they... You know, that's their metaphor for, that's the Zen metaphor for what life is like. <laughs> um, so, how do we be with the unresolved? Well, um, a lot of this might sound obvious, but it's important that we talk about it and then we practice it. The first is that uh, distress tolerance, which is a cornerstone of many not only Buddhist practice, but dialectical behavioral therapy uh, and other therapeutic modalities, which is simply, rather than repressing uh, uh, an event or something that's nagging, uh, to allow it to be there, but to make uh, and to focus on the embodied part rather than try to figure it out or solve it or make sense of it, just to be with the physical sensations and learn how to relax your body when you're in a vulnerable, unsettled experience in your life. When you're uh, uh, waiting or bored or uh, uh, in any situation, put aside the thought Stay with the somatic physiological tension that is in the body, very often in the chest, the stomach, the throat, all the things that get tense when we feel um, in some way uh, out of the loop or we don't have, we feel vulnerable to unknown outcomes. And to just breathe and use all the tools of relaxing the body. So if you can relax the body, the stress, of almost any situation in life becomes very bearable. You could be um, in the most uncomfortable conflict conversation that you've been trying to avoid and you can't avoid it any longer and you're there. And if you focus instead of, of looking at the individual solely, like shrinking your awareness around them, and instead, while you're in that conflict, you're having that <coughs> conversation that you dreaded with the roommate, and you just breathe really long, and you relax, and drop the shoulders, and you soften the belly, the release of the vagal vagus nerve informs your amygdala, hey, I'm not under attack here, I know this is not fun, but I'm safe in this situation, and that will then change the setting of your autonomic nervous system and it will reduce the stress hormones and will make you feel a lot safer. So the stress tolerance is a very important tool. 
The second tool is, is really obvious, but it's worth noting. Uh, all the clinical studies by Dan Wegman of Harvard showed that if you try not to think about something, that doesn't work. <laughs> In fact, if you try not to think about something, you will think about it twice as much as if you just allow yourself to think about it, but even that might be too much. But he said, by the way, if you're really creative and find something else to think about that's really interesting to you, then it's very possible to not get caught up in the issue that's unresolved or that's painful for you to think about. So many of us try when there's an obsessive worry or fear or obsessive concern about someone where we've been mistreated, we have the thought keep coming up and again and again of what we're going to say or do, or we're in a relationship and we don't know if they really like us or why they haven't connected with us or whatever, it, to not think about that spiraling, thinking about one's ex, whatever, find something that is creative and interesting and something that you find fascinating and think about that. In Wegner's experiments, he, he did the whole thing about telling people not to think about white bears. And fuck it, none, nobody could then stop thinking about polar bears, you know. <laughs> nobody was thinking about polar bears until he said, don't think about them. Then people were thinking about it every moment. They were hitting this bell every time. They, you know, bing, 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 you know, he said not to think about it. But then he said, okay, he put up a picture of a red Volkswagen. <laughs> which is not fucking interesting, but he said, okay, you can think about this red Volkswagen, and people stopped hitting the button, because they were thinking about red Volkswagen, so that's a technique, okay? Uh, number three, expressive writing. Uh, Baker, the clinical psychologist at the University of Texas, found in his studies that when people in four sessions of 20 minutes, just write out whatever they are feeling or worrying about without editing it in any way, just writing it out without showing it to anyone, just writing it out is a very, very efficient emotion regulation tool. It tends to take away the power because the thought keeps coming up because there's this underlying desire to explain, be in control, if you write out the thought, for some reason, I'm not exactly sure of the neural uh, underpinnings for it, but basically just writing it out tends to satisfy or satiate that circuit that's trying to get your attention. So writing it out, in today's meditation we are not going to be writing anything out. I'm just going to have to assume that as adults you can do that. Um, of course, uh, the last two tools, uh, cultivate people that you can talk to that will not require you to figure it out or to know what's going on, that can just listen to you express, oh wow, I heard some information today, it really is kind of fucked up, I'm confused, I don't know what to think about it, and they won't try to make you have a, they will just listen, and they will just go, okay, yeah, that sucks, that sounds pretty bad, they validate the emotions they don't try to legislate a interpretation. And then finally, the Buddha also talks about in the recollections the ability to skillfully recollect times in life where we went through similar vulnerable experiences and things turned out okay. So 
The times in life we might have heard something when we were young really bad about parents, or we might have suspected something really bad about somebody we cared about, or we might have been without information uh, that would have really helped us to make wise decisions, but we didn't have enough, and uh, we still, we didn't die, we didn't suffer unusually. We, uh, to give us far more credit that we can be in a state of not knowing without it being something that is lastingly um, debilitating in any way. For me, my entire 20s was fell into that category. I was a, a young drug addict, alcoholic. I was living off of ramen noodles and playing in really, really bad bands. <laughs> and, uh, I was editing for just enough money to pay you know, for my food. I was actually living in squats on the Lower East Side. So there was no stability. I didn't know how any day, how I was, gonna, I was going to survive. I literally, this is, this is honest truth. I don't know why I'm crossing. I'm not in any way. <laughs> I'm a Jewish Buddhist, so that means nothing. I, you know, I can do that all day long, and you should not give it a grain of salt. But I uh, take my word for it, I actually edited Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy's YA books while I was wasted out of my brain. <laughs> so I was like, this, this is great. No, don't write that. I was probably, me, intoxicated, was probably right at the level of a fifth grade reader. So. <laughs> So, uh, all right, so let's meditate. Thank you for listening. So find a really comfortable, upright position that doesn't feel, uh, you know, awkward, uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes I just will slightly rock from left to right and back and forward with my eyes closed and just allow my body to just find by itself without me supervising it what just where my body stops rocking is just generally a good way to start and, you know, uh, make sure that your chin is not in any way slouching in front of your chest, lowering. So if it, for many people, it helps to just gently tilt the head back or lifting the chin slightly up so that, like, you're looking at a tall building and that just can help, um, avert the possibility of slouching, which is really the enemy of 
any meditation? So try to cultivate that experience of really arriving in life, which is that time, for example, after a long, long, extensive trip, traveling, you get out of a car and you walk to a place that you'll be staying, you drop your bags and you just go to find a really comfortable place to sit and you unwind and you really relax into the setting without having any desire to plan or to think about what's going on in the future or what has happened previously. You just really want to be where you are and just sink into where you are. That feeling of when you get to that perfect spot on the beach and you might put out a beach chair or a beach towel and you just find the most comfortable seat and you just feel the sun and the waves, the sand of the waves and uh, the texture of the sand, your feet. And so there's just this experience in the body of letting go. So just feel your body releasing any of the busyness of needing to go anywhere, do anything, plan for anything, no need to take care of anyone, no need to make anybody like us or worry about what anybody is thinking or doing. This really the, that magical feeling of arriving in life. And that's something that you can have so much more often than we generally believe because the key to feeling that wonderful state of arriving is not going somewhere. It's not dependent on a beach or a mountaintop or a beautiful vista. It's actually simply created by relaxing the body, allowing the breath to be very long, to put aside any need to plan or think about anything that's not happening in the present, to not have to keep track of any obligations. So arriving in life is almost invariably available. So we'll sit for a while in quiet and to stay arrived in the present, to really deepen into just a, a 
appreciative awareness of this experience and not abandon it for planning or worrying or remembering. It's good to keep something in mind that's actually happening in the present. So that could be the sounds. This room has a lovely uh, ambience that of cars, horns, drifting in from the Bowery below. Sounds, just being with sounds without adding an image to what's creating a sound or having an, a view or an opinion. I like that sound. I don't like that car horn. Just being, listening without any agenda or any need to criticize. You could simply observe the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. That can be pretty relaxing as well, especially if you combine that with the listening. Not images that you create, just closed eye visuals are lights, optic patterns behind the eyelids. But perhaps the most familiar present time sensation is body based sensations and obviously the most common object is the breath and all that means is finding an area in your body where you know when you're breathing in and you know when you're breathing out and you know when there's a pause between the out breath and the next in breath that's the three components of the breath really So while you're breathing in, you could think in, or the number one. While you're breathing out, think out, or think the number two. And then when you pause, just think pause. And then on the next in-breath, if you're counting, you could think three. On the out-breath, think four. And on the... Pause, just think pause. The next in-breath, think five, and then on the out-breath, start counting down, four, and so forth. So you're counting from one to five and back down. So that's pretty much the practice. Most important is, of course, because whenever we simply in the past have relaxed and abided and just not filled our life up with tasks, the first thing we tend to do is to think, to plan, to fantasize, to 
create things in our mind, and there's nothing wrong with that, except that's not what we're doing, and it also tends to be stressful, and it also doesn't benefit the brain, whereas meditation, staying present, actually has significant neural benefits. Thinking is not particularly a good state for neural repair or growth of regions that you want to keep healthy in the brain. So most important is when you do wind up thinking and you get pulled away to just become aware, bring your mind back to whatever object, sound, lights, breath. Just bring awareness back and don't add any judgment, any criticism, no impatience. The very foundation of your meditation is kindness, self-acceptance, and patience. If that's all you practice, again and again and again, being kind and patient when your mind drifts away, your meditation will still be extremely beneficial.
So, at this point, you can allow whatever sensations that have been held in your foreground awareness to recede into background (coughs) sensations, not pushing them away, just not holding them in the forefront of attention. And then bring to mind something in your life that is even unpleasantly unresolved, a project you've undertaken, maybe an upcoming need to move, a financial situation, unresolved relationship, anything in your life where you do not have the answer right now, and while you hold that image, see if you can just feel what it's like physically to not know, I just don't know, and how does that feel to even have that thought, I just don't know, while you hold the image, moving, job, relationship, I just don't know, I just don't know what's the right thing right now, I just don't know how this will turn out, what does it feel like to not know, well very often it feels a little bit tight in the belly, where we hold fear. It could be a slight contraction in the neck. You might find your forehead slightly tense. It's so easy to try to figure out and come to a conclusion, but to not know, to be okay with the unresolved is not easy. And so while that is there, see if you can uh, take a nice deep breath and then you release the breath through the mouth. Just relax. We still don't know, but At least now our breath is comfortable. And softening the belly, nice, soft, round belly. So we don't know, but our breath is comfortable and our stomach is really pliant. Not knowing and our shoulders are released, slightly Pulling them back so the chest is open up, so the chest is open, the belly is soft, the out-breath is really long. So we still don't know how things will turn out, but 
right now we feel really comfortable. So let go of that first reflection and then bring to mind a large movie screen in front of you and you're sitting in a really comfortable center seat and there's this movie screen, you're in the theater and project onto that movie screen something that's really a frightening possibility or something that is difficult to work with something that a possibility that is a worry or possibility that is somewhat dreaded but it keeps coming to mind and instead of adding more to this fear, just let it be on the movie screen, but take a look around you in this theater and note that you're not in that movie. It's just a projection of your mind. <coughs> so you're not trying to get rid of the thought, but you're not climbing into it. It's just something that's being projected. So, like you were in a movie theater, just relax, settle. It might be an uncomfortable movie that the brain is playing, but the body can relax. bring to mind something that's very safe for you to think about, some activity, task that really is meaningful for you, something that's creative or something you enjoy doing. What is that self-soothing behavior? What is your go-to skill that's there that even when the most pesky, obsessive thought comes up, you can put it aside for this. What do you enjoy doing the most that you could focus on? bring to mind the image of a friend, somebody that you can talk to that really 
if you said, I just need to talk to someone, I don't need you to figure it out, I don't need to know who's that person. Just hold their image in your mind. Just feel your body. What do you feel like when you visualize this person? So at this point I'm going to In a moment, ring the bowl, and as usual, the request is to, before you look around the room at the sound of the bowl, just slowly open up your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you. You'll see light, colors, pattern on the floor, and see if you can just develop an awareness that is aware of how you feel in your body, but also aware of the light and the color around you. The goal is to reach a very balanced awareness between interoception, feeling what's going on within, and exteroception, knowing what's going on around you. If you have that, you have a mindful awareness and you can integrate the messages from different regions of your brain. But if we simply think and look around but don't feel the body, then we immediately are pushing aside so much information and intuition that's being provided by the right hemisphere.